0: The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language and a distinctly annoying post-nasal drip.
1: Attention shoppers, this is the end. There is no hope. Nothing but misery and death awaits us. Bid your loved ones goodbye, lie down on the floor and quietly await the end of all things. And for the next hour, it's buy one, get one free at Chickamaniacs.
2: The 6th of September 2016. Yes, it's September and that means that here in the Southern Hemisphere, spring has sprung. In the United States, there's a, a thing called spring break, but in Australia, things didn't quite break. It was more of a bruise, but a pretty bad one. This is the 9pm spring bruise. I have literally no idea what spring break is, except that it is in spring, and it happens in America, and it presumably involves breaking things. Perhaps it's like that Greek thing, you know, at a wedding where you you smash the plates, or uh, the Russian thing where if you've had vodka, you just skull the vodka and hurl the glass into the fireplace. I'm sure it's. Something exactly like that. Uh, but this whole bruise break thing, I uh, guess. See, the Saturday before last, there was an incident. It, it involved no alcohol whatsoever of any kind at all done, but it did involve the corner of a rather solid coffee table. Uh, and one thing, the complete lack of alcohol led to uh, an impact of the corner of the coffee table into this bit of my back, just just there, really hard, and it hurt. And the next morning I kind of noticed that it was kind of up in the eight or nine out of ten pain levels, but only if I moved. So I thought, that can't be too bad. I can actually stand and I can sort of carry things, so I soldiered on, as you do. But then it got worse, didn't it? It got much, much worse. Uh, So on the Tuesday, I thought I'd better get it checked out and uh, went to the local hospital up here in the Upper Blue Mountains and uh, I took x-rays, which is apparently some scientific thing. We'll be talking more about science in a little while. Uh, And had a bit of a prod and a poke. And it turns out that, no, I had not broken any ribs and uh, I, I pissed into a little container and they went away and did some tests on that and determined that there were no traces of blood in it, which meant no kidney damage. And I thought, that's all kind of good. So what have we got here? And they said, oh, what you have there is a contusion of the ribs. And I went, oh, yeah, that sounds very scientific. Uh, and then... I I learned later that contusion is just a fancy word for bruise. So I I was already kind of on that diagnosis before I got there. But what I then discovered is that when you have contusion of the, the ribs or indeed... Broken ribs, there's actually nothing they can do really uh, except fill you full of uh, anti-inflammatories and painkillers and send you on your way and tell you to rest and all of that. And uh, I did discover in fairly short order that uh, the, the basic deal would be that uh, this would go for fucking weeks. And, and we're about, what, 7th Tuesday, we're about nine days into it and I was told that, you know, if it doesn't stay, Start to settle down, you know, in the first week, then come back. Well, it sort of it started winding down uh, at the beginning. I, I, Unless I moved my torso in quite specific ways, it was this eye-watering 10 out of 10 stab of pain. And, oh, yeah, 10 out of 10, I, I know how painful pain can get. Otherwise, just this dull ache and stiffness, which which went okay. Um, I could breathe all right. Apparently that's a thing if you've broken a rib. But coughing, sneezing, oh, that was right out. Um yeah, painkillers, rare anti-inflammatories. I've kind of been disregarding most of the safety warnings on that. Um, uh, Pressman, Pressman's apple cider is quite good if you want to try it sometime. Um, but I could see that this was going to be a problem because I, I live mostly on, by myself. Up here in the mountains, I'm a kilometre and a half out of town in a forest. I couldn't move without these... Massive stabs of pain And while I was coping with it I thought, look, I have to actually pick up and move things And turn and twist and whatever Just to do things around the house And I thought, yeah, I can start to see Why old blokes with chronic pain Living alone in a forest End up writing manifestos And collecting dead rats And arranging them according to size and plumpness and here's the other thing about this. Like I said, I couldn't uh, cough or sneeze, and that was really annoying because I was starting to get hay fever because we've got spring up here. Um, scoffing all the codeine that I was, codeine causes constipation. So well, Like I could, I could fart okay, just kind of then the strain and groan and the rib twist, oh, oh uh, yeah, perhaps... Uh, you don't really need a description of that, do you? No, you do not. But speaking of constipation, Senator Malcolm Roberts. <laughs> oh dear. Australia has, has excelled itself uh, in its last federal election. I've, I think when my... Did the last episode of this podcast, we hadn't quite got the official results uh, of the election yet at that stage. We do now. And what I think is truly gorgeous is that we have elected a climate change denialist 9 11 truther loon to the Australian Senate. Here's a snippet from a press conference he did about uh four weeks ago now where who is oh look i'll i'll include the question uh where is it here we go just googling you uh malcolm roberts has reportedly said climate change is con- controlled by and i quote some of the major banking families in the, in the
0: world who form a tight-knit
1: cabal certainly michael i've done a lot of research into the climate and as i've said before my, my research is based on entirely on empirical evidence. That's the fundamental of science. So when I realized that wasn't there, I went looking into the various agencies that have been spreading this and corrupting the climate, science, and I started finding out things like about the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology. And that led me then to the UN, which has been driving this. And then I started following the money trails because it's important to understand the motives. And the people who will benefit enormously from the climate scam are the major international banks through their carbon dioxide trading. Now, Al Gore, it's well known, his company, Generation Investment Management, is the fifth largest shareholder on the Chicago Climate Exchange, which is now just about dead, but he was pushing that. Also pushing that were the, was the first Secretary General of the United Nations Environmental Program, um, Morris Strong who has been wanted for other charges, criminal charges in the United States. He's now dead. But uh, those banks will make enormous money. They've said so themselves. Trillions, not billions, Michael, trillions on trading of carbon dioxide credits for a problem that has been fabricated entirely and does not exist. That's what I mean. This guy
2: is an Australian senator. It is going to be so much fun Over the next, well, I don't know whether he's got a three-year term or a six-year term, but at least three years. Uh, I think the first occasion you'll uh, get to hear him is uh, next Tuesday. So what's that? The 13th Of September. Apparently, his maiden speech in the Senate is at five o'clock or so next Tuesday. I will report on this in due course. Uh, I also would like, oh, excuse me. I'd also like to refer you to a wonderful article by Graham Redfern, R-E-A-D, F-E-A-R-E-N, with the title, When Senator Malcolm Roberts thanked 9-11 truthers and New World Order conspiracists for their science guidance. Um... Where do you start? I mean, you've heard him say that climate science is a fraud being pushed by the United Nations. He has said, of course, that the United Nations wants to instill a world government. Um, where is... Oh, look, he's, he's got a list here somewhere. Oh, 2013, he sent in some report with all of the usual sovereign citizen stuff and I should probably do something on Sovereign Citizens in another episode. But he thanked a whole bunch of people, including uh, Herawood Fenton, who's a 9-11 truther. They're the people who think that the 9-11 attacks on New York and the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and so on were all organised by Americans as a great conspiracy, Uh, that the towers were blown, you know, jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams and all of that. Um... Uh, he quotes, or rather, uh, says he appreciates Leon Pittard, who hosts something called Fair Dinkum Radio, uh, and uh, the blurb for that program is: "Each week, we monitor the progress and the development of the New World Order, known in the Bible as the Kingdom of Babylon." This is uh, it, it's excellent stuff. Oh, he of course. Shares material from David Icky. Vaccines are destroying our people. Uh, The Queen is actually a lizard involved in global drug trafficking. Look, this is... uh pretty special stuff. So that's Senator Malcolm Roberts. Do look out for him. Uh, he will be a great fixture uh, of the Senate, and I think it will be wonderful. Uh, th- th- there's a whole lot of other loonies in the, feder- uh, the, the new Senate. I suggest you look them up for yourself if you haven't already done so. Uh, it's going to be absolutely crazy. But what I will say is that... But one really important aspect of Australia's new Senate is that it proves there are actually things more useless than the Attorney-General. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. Welcome to the Edict. Now, while uh, Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts now, is a fan of science... For some value of science, so am I for a different value of science. So I was intrigued uh, by a number of things over the last couple of weeks. One was a tweet from The Australian, uh, our national broadsheet newspaper, uh, which said, quote, drone fatalities will be a case of, quote, when not if, unquote, unquote. The outer quotes were for the tweet, and the inner quote was the quotes in the headline on the tweet. I'm sure you got that drone fatalities will be a case of when not if and it was illustrated by a photograph of a guy with a quadcopter drone and he was like dropping a carrot into the blades of the thing so i suppose if you you know drop your dongle into the the blades of a, a helicopter sure that's gonna hurt but drone fatalities if not when well look if a thing has a finite probability of happening or ability uh, of happening, then, yes, it is a case of when, not if, right? Um, you know, some being struck by lightning is a case of when, not if. Someone will probably be struck by lightning this week somewhere. There's 7 billion people on the planet. Um, I observed at the time, yeah, of course... Drone fatalities are a when, not if, so are paracetamol fatalities, so are bathtub fatalities. All of them are inevitable. The question comes down to the actual numbers, the relative risk. And I bang on about uh, this quite a bit, but it becomes important. Let me give you another example. In New South Wales, which is where I spend most of my time, we actually have an independent body to look at crime statistics. So, whenever the politicians say, Oh, there's a, a wave of robberies in this area or whatever it might be, there is a thing called BOXAR, the Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research that actually has independent figures, and uh, their boss, Dr Don Weatherburn, uh, is not afraid of going out on the media and saying, no, what the Attorney Attorney General just said is rubbish at the state level or whatever it is. Well, the other day, uh, well, yesterday, actually, their uh, quarterly figures to the end of June uh, were released, and... Only two of the 17 major offence categories showed a significant upward trend across the state. Nine were trending, downward, six offences stable. The only offences trending upward was steal from a retail store, which was up 6.3%, and fraud, up 1.7%. And they're not massive surges in crime, really, are they? The thing to notice is murder down thirty two percent, robbery without a weapon down twenty six percent, robbery with a firearm down forty two percent, robbery with a weapon that isn't a firearm down twenty two percent. I sound like I'm doing a kind of discount store ad here, but this is uh, this is the thing. Now it's worth saying they're the average figures uh, across. The state of New South Wales. So you're going to get kind of regional ups and downs. But how many of them are due to uh, policing being, uh, or policing resources being allocated according to need? Uh, and an example of that, let me dig down into the actual report here. And this is one, this one's really difficult to do. Uh, when we're looking at not the 24-month trend, which is what I was quoting before, but the 60-month trend over five years, we see that, for example, domestic violence-related assault is up 2.3% and uh, a couple of others here which I won't dig out now. But how much of that is due to increased policing and reporting and investigation? As opposed to an increase in the prevalence of that crime. Uh, an example, uh, let's dig down to drugs. Let's look at drugs. Possession and/or use of amphetamines up 18.6% over 24 months. How much of that is due to an actual increase in amphetamine use? And how much of it is because the New South Wales Police has actually been running a Dobbin a Dealer campaign, specifically looking at amphetamines, specifically because the politicians, including our previous uh, uh, Prime Minister, Crusader Rabbit, have been banging on about the ice epidemic and uh, its role as the scourge in our society, the scourge of the ice epidemic. Whereas there's another kind of investigative body, uh, the Drug Policy Foundation or some such thing, which has said, no, there isn't actually an increase in the number of users as a proportion of the population. There's just a shift and change of usage around and, and there really isn't an epidemic of any kind. So I mention all that because it's very easy to cherry pick numbers out of that and say that crime is up when, in fact, no, it's not. It's only in a couple of very specific things. I should say fraud's up 1.7%, but you know, we've got an internet now and that makes fraud easier. It is so easy to spin these figures in various ways. Uh, Another one I noticed, they're talking about uh, firearms offences and, oh, we've got, I don't know whether it's a plague of guns or an epidemic of guns or a scourge of guns or whatever it might be, but uh, this latest Boxar report notes that, quote, "'Shootings are at their lowest level in 20 years.'" which is like the complete opposite of the government, federal government, pumping all this extra money into tracking firearms. Science is a wonderful thing. We can, of course, do science ourselves. And I did a bit of science the other day. Pringles. Pringles are shit, right? I mean, They're kind of like a tube full of sliced cardboard with a little bit of salt sprinkled on them, and even then, not that much salt. Well, the other day, I actually conducted a uh, a poll on Twitter, which is, of course, the most statistically valid thing to do in cases like this, and I found that 59% of people, the majority of people, think Pringles are, at best, a bit shit. Some 14% of people think Pringles are worse than Hitler. Now, people are, of course, free to make their own judgments in these matters, but if they don't think Pringles are worse than Hitler, then they're basically wrong. It's just like there are two kinds of peanut butter, crunchy and wrong. I think I might put some more... uh, effort into scientific research of that kind. On a related note, political reporting. There was a tweet from Channel 9 News Australia. When's the date on this? Oh, Sunday. And the tweet said, no, actually I'll read the uh, intro to the news story it linked to. Turnbull may have just a year Albanese. So that's about Albo, Anthony Albanese, Labor Front Bencher. And and the first part goes, Labour front bencher and former manager of government business, Anthony Albanese, believes the Turnbull government could have as little as a year to run. And I saw so many political numpties retweeting that. And oh God, the Labor yeah, the Turnbull's only got a, a year to run. But no, no, let's roll this back. What the breaking news is here is that a politician has said his political opponent is not very good. What a surprise. The opposition thinks the government won't last out the year. <laughs> well, of course they're going to think something like that, you dipshits. And and I wonder, what... Someone should measure this. Someone should do this as a student exercise in a media studies department or a journalism school. What proportion of this alleged journalism, this uh, this alleged political journalism, is nothing but the transcription of these self-serving assertions? And it occurred to me, like, what is the actual difference between this so-called journalism and playground reportage? I mean, what is it about... Oh, well, Albo says you're not going to last a year, or Jimmy says your mum is fat and ugly. You're just reporting someone, insulting someone else when you know they're going to do that anyway. What is the actual point of it all? This is something I think we need to consider. Have you heard about slow TV? It's something I've known about for a few years ago. A few years ago now, it is a uh, a thing. In fact, that has happened for a few years. Slow TV. It, it the Norwegian word "suck the TV" is uh, probably important because the the. People who are doing most of this slow TV are the Norwegians. And it's a genre of, of course, this is the Wikipedia I'm reading here. It's a genre of live marathon television coverage of an ordinary event in its complete length. And one of the the classic examples uh, is uh, from 2009 now, good heavens, seven years ago. But uh, it's called Bergensbanen Minut for Minut, which is basically a live broadcast of the train from Oslo to Bergen, which takes seven hours. Now, this particular program was uh, part of the celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the building of that railway line Uh, and had a bunch of uh, cameras looking out from the train and when it stopped at stations, they had interviews and had little features on the town. And something like... uh, at any one time there were 176,000 people watching this and something like 20% of the population of Norway did drop in at least once during this 7 hour thing i i've know people who've watched it found it just wonderful it's beautiful as it goes up across the mountains from one side of uh, Norway to the others uh, to the other Uh, They've done some uh, – another one went for – oh, from 2011, uh, Hurtigruten Minute for Minute, which ran for 134 hours. It was aboard a cruise ship travelling from Bergen up to Kirkenis. So that had cameras all over the ship. But as it's going up the coast, it was really just this slow unfolding – a beautiful coastline and, and others have copied it uh, one that i quite like is oh, where can i find this um national wood night uh which was a 12 hour long program about firewood and again some 20 percent of the population of norway watched that uh And uh, the show was about four hours of kind of normal television documentary and chat format, followed by, quote, eight hours of a live fireplace. (laughs) It's just wonderful. And another one, oh, yes, November 2013, National Knitting Night, 12 hours of nonstop knitting. (laughs) I love the idea of slow TV, and I've thought of – Doing something similar myself with this podcast or uh, uh, with a live audio or video stream. Now, I kind of did that uh, with two episodes ago when I just read out all of Pauline Hanson's uh, one na- Pauline Hansen One Nation. That's the name of the political party. But I read out their entire policy uh, platform over a, what was about three hours, wasn't it? Uh, when the Chilcot report came out in Britain, this is this massive million word or whatever it is, investigation into uh, Britain's involvement in the invasion of Iraq, Uh, I did note that some people had set up a live reading of all of that, which was going to last, I think, a week or something. And that was being broadcast live 24-7 from a garden shed somewhere in Britain. So I'm thinking of doing something similar with with either this podcast or uh, or something else if you've got any thoughts let me know uh, and i'll see if i can make it happen uh, and indeed if you have any other suggestions uh for this do let me know because this podcast is all about you the listeners it is made possible by you, the listeners, uh, through your subscriptions and one-off contributions, and I'd like to thank for this episode uh, some generous contributions from Twiddlekins and Paul Davis. Well, actually, they came in between the last episode and this one, so thank you to you both, gentlemen. If you would like to contribute to the podcast uh, with you know, money, uh, you'll be able to do that with subscriptions very soon. Again, there's been a bit of a, a, a hiatus with the subscriptions, but if you want to chuck in a one-off thing, go to stilgarian.com slash tip. You can pay through credit card or through um, PayPal there. That would be very lovely if you did so. Looking further ahead, uh, there will be another public house forum episode of this podcast recorded live in a pub. That will be on Saturday the 15th of October, somewhere around Sydney, and then in November, I'll be doing one from Melbourne. I haven't set the date for that yet. Mm. Excuse me. This cider has bubbles in it. Um, but there'll be another episode before then. Uh, I'll tell you about that. But the one to put in your diary now is Saturday the 15th of October for the Public House Forum. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's about all I need to tell you about the podcast for now. And now it's
0: time for Nicholas Fryer with a look through the arch window. Like many men of my class, education, political leanings and age, I recently celebrated my 30th, 17th birthday, I congratulate myself on my complete freedom from the wickedness of sexism. My wife and close female friends would, I'm sure, entirely agree with me, but of course I've never been foolish enough to ask them the question direct. As any sensitive participant in the discourse of identity politics knows, requiring the marginalised to educate the privileged is itself a form of oppression, and in any case they're often very busy in the kitchen or laundry, for reasons I don't pretend to understand. But free though I am from ridiculous antiquated notions of female incapability... Like most people, I am guilty of a handful of stereotypical assumptions, and pretty centrally located among those is that women generally suffer from a congenital inability to read the damned instruction book before using complicated and sophisticated equipment. Why this should be, I don't know. There's often much fun to be had in exploring the full range of capabilities of a device. A recent case in point was my purchase of an upmarket toy of the variety usually called Adult, as a birthday present for the companion of my joys and sorrows. Despite a very limited set of buttons, what I believe the kids would call an extremely clean user experience, the little rocket was capable of an astonishing variety of vibrations and contortions. The evening we spent, fully clothed, while she repeatedly surprised herself by following a series of instructions read out by me from the enclosed pamphlet, was probably my funniest experience of recent months. The best thing about stereotypes, though, is the delight when they're confounded. I was therefore tickled, at least pinkish, when I saw, on the train into work a week ago, that a female fellow traveller was not only consulting an actual hard-copy set of instructions, but was, in fact, persistently and deliberately reading page after page of the driver's manual of a Mazda 3 automobile. My head swam with questions. Here was a woman who, presumably, was not simply perusing the manual out of a sense of abstract curiosity. It seemed reasonable to infer that she actually owned a Mazda. Then why was she on the train? For economy's sake? Because she likes drunks and collects diseases of the upper respiratory tract? Or was the car currently out of order? Was she, in fact, doing the necessary intellectual tooling up, preparatory to attempting repairs herself? All of these possibilities swam through my head, before I finally settled on one that was so transcendentally appropriate, sensible, right, and correct, that I immediately absorbed it into myself as a fundamental truth of the universe. She had just, I decided, purchased the car in question. It was, even then, sitting at home, in perfect working order. She dislikes trains, and she did plan to use the car for her daily commute, but... And here I made a little silent squee of delight. She was not driving the car, because she had not yet read the manual, from cover to dog-eared cover. And only a child or a fool would take a ton of deadly metal under one's control, unless one knows precisely how to operate everything, up to and including the iPod dock and the little light in the boot. This, probably wholly confected, reassurance about the state of humanity kept me warm for the remainder of the day. One of the advantages I have in reaching my deep empathy for and understanding of the lot of women is that of temperament. Many men, as the world knows, complain tediously that for a handful of days every four weeks or so, women can be a bit short-tempered and testy, liable to latch onto any slight, real or imagined, as the basis for bitter words and sudden outrage. Of course, I too regret it when my failure to consult with my wife before making some trivial plan wholly without impact upon her becomes a cause for moral panic and accusations of emotional neglect but i cannot blame her for spending three days in every 28 in a simmering rage because i spend all 28 in the same condition and it is frustration itself to be howlingly angry at the universe and not to have an object on which to fix one's scorn the problem is admittedly a rare one the world being what it is, but there are times when the usual sources of irritation give way to a peculiar untroubled calm in which one is put to the bother of finding a justification for continuing to be an arse about everything all of the time. Federal politics represents a case in point. Better humorists than me bemoaned the deposing of former Prime Minister Tiny Poppet because without him the world was simply bound to be less slightly menacingly weird Now, the federal government has apparently been abolished altogether. I mean, there was supposed to be some sort of election, wasn't there? I remember seeing a bloke talking about stable government, but perhaps that had something to do with the horse racing industry. In any event, it's pretty clear that we're unlikely to be troubled by anything resembling attempted management, or, God forbid, legislation, coming from Canberra over the next year or two. So I'm left with a generous supply of rancid disappointment, and nothing much to smear it on. This can have unfortunate consequences. Yesterday, I caused a scene in the local bakery when it became apparent that, despite the sign offering to sell me a family meat pie for a very competitive price, I wasn't, in fact, able to nominate the particular family to go into the mincer. The day before that, I lost it with a man who was selling small, wooden plaques containing allegedly uplifting excerpts from scripture. It wasn't his proselytization of an ancient faith, or frankly extortionate prices, that got my goat... It was his adoption of the King James version of the wording, with its bizarre choice of prepositions. How I demanded to know, spittle flying from my lips, was I supposed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ when the Messiah was rarely found down our way and never lay still long enough for me to assume the required position? And as for the psalmist banging on about those going down to the sea in ships, even at the leisurely pace affected by most of the police in the McLaren Vale area, I was prepared. I ranted, perfectly reasonably, to bet on their ability to catch up with and slap a defect notice on any seagoing vessel attempting to navigate the public roads in an oceanwards direction before it could slip into the element for which it was clearly designed. At that point, the vendor of aphorisms gestured in the direction of a couple of passing uniforms and suggested that we ask them if they agreed with my views, whereupon I thought it best to start speaking in tongues and move on to find spiritual fulfilment elsewhere. That search, regrettably, continues. But we all have crosses to bear, even such enlightened souls, as your correspondent, Utopia, is not yet. But it is coming, Oh, my sisters. It is surely coming soon.
2: I see that Nick Cav has made the suggestion for a... Uh slow TV or slow radio uh, program to read through the end user license agreement for, I don't know, software, I suppose, maybe for Windows uh, Windows XP or something like that. Someone actually did that. I've closed the browser window now, but I think it was again a Scandinavian country um, that had decided to show the stupidity of all of these agreements to <laughs> excuse me, oh, sorry about that um oh dear, cough and choke um uh, where was I oh yes to show the uh stupidity of these uh, vast licensing agreements that yeah they they just read th- read through a few of them the whole thing um yeah, uh. I mean, that's kind of a bit of a performance art job, that, isn't it? It's going to be all legalese, but I'm happy to go with something else. Um, Again, I'd like to uh, hear your suggestions uh, about that. Um, What else is it? It's spring. I should mention, actually, that up here in the uh, Blue Mountains, uh, spring has come quite early. Uh, We've had uh, blossoms of all nature out there. It was a big blue uh, bright blue sky today and uh, uh, here at Bungery Cottages it's actually been quite pretty and look a quick plug uh, September and I think then into October is still relatively light in terms of booking so if you'd like to uh, disappear uh, into the scrubland here for a, a few days and enjoy the more than uh, there's 50 species of birds I told we have echidnas up here I haven't seen an echidna yet I saw a quoll once Uh, We do have swamp wallabies and things, but Bungery Cottages, um, you'll see me plugging it on the Twitters from time to time, and if you tell – I should have organised some sort of discount thing for listeners of this podcast, but – Just, just demand special treatment from Richard Chergwin and his wife who owned the place, and uh, you you may get uh, (laughs) you may get special treatment, or you may not. Uh, But we do uh, have so many, as I say, more than fifty species of birds, uh, and also so many kinds of plants and flowers, including the wattle.
1: This is the wattle, the emblem of our land. You can stick it in a bottle. You can hold it in your hand. Amen. Amen.
2: The waddles really are quite beautiful uh, up here. Um, what else did I want to tell you about this episode? Oh, yes, the Sydney. Uh, look, th- this was triggered by the uh, uh, the news the other day that Burning Man, the... How long's Burning Man been going? 20 years? Must be longer than 20 years now. 30 years? I don't know. Someone will tell me on the Twitters, I'm sure. But Burning Man out in the desert at this time each year, uh, heaps and heaps of people go. Kyle Sanderlands went this year, which just goes to show how, how edgy the whole thing is now. And I thought, gee... That's kind of Sydney breaking out into the world, and it reminded me of uh, the so-called Sydney push, which again I'm reading from the Wikipedia, was a bunch of quote predominantly left-wing intellectuals uh, in the late between the late 1940s and the early 1970s who went from Sydney. Uh, particularly to London. I mean, here's some names in all of that. Uh, Patty McGuinness, who's a columnist now. I think he's still with us. Jermaine Greer, the feminist. Clive James, who's uh, not with us for very much longer, by all accounts. Uh, Robert Hughes, the art critic, who's now dead. Frank Mulhouse. Uh, poet Les Murray. Uh, and. Others, uh, there was another few names here that I wanted to mention, but it comes around like Oz Magazine when it was founded in the the UK. Um, oh, who else was in it? It it really was um, that whole point in Australia's history where. Australians kind of connected up to the rest of the world and and Australia stopped being quite so colonial. Uh, If you look at some of the imagery of the uh, late 1950s, early 1960s in Australia, you can see that it lags way behind the United States. And the United States, of course, had the boom, the huge economic boom after the Second World War. That didn't happen in the UK simply because the U- UK was uh, in debt up to its eyeballs after World War Two. And I think it's only—it's not that many years ago that that Britain finally finished paying off its World War Two loans to the United States. Um, and Australia was just like this backwater Uh, and so uh, Britain and Australia lagged so far behind the United States. You look at things like the design of cars and trucks, uh, housing and so on and so that 1960s Sydney push and particularly from people who were uh, at Sydney University um, into into Britain, they well to be perfectly uh, honest, I think most of them are, are pretty overrated. I mean, Jermaine Greer is is loud, uh, and she did uh, publish an important book, namely uh, the Female Eunuch, a very important piece uh, in in feminism in feminist history. But really, now she just wanders around being being loud and controversial, and. and she touched me once. I was sort of a thing. Um, she's sort of the patron of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas at the Sydney Opera House. And I was actually on a panel discussion there once. It wasn't very dangerous at all. But uh, I um, at the opening party, uh, I mean, both Ms Greer and myself may have had a bit to drink. But while we were chatting, she kept stroking my arm. <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, it brings back <laughs> terrible memories. I, I really need bourbon and cigars to do this program. Um, the whole reason that came up, the Sydney push thing, is that Richard Neville, one of the uh, founders of satirical magazine Oz, uh, died uh, just a couple of days ago. I think it was on Sunday. And so that's pushed all of these people into the news. So I, I combined that with <laughs> Kyle Sanderland's being the new generation and I just thought who would be who would be those equivalents in 2016 Sydney um it's hard to make it the same thing because we are in a much more global, uh, globalised society now and, and Australia, it's still a backwater in some ways, but we can intellectually connect up with the rest of the world quite quickly. Uh, so perhaps uh, if you have any thoughts as to who might be our equivalents there, uh, I will put a blog post up. Tomorrow, that's on Wednesday the 7th of September, uh, listing a few and, and asking for your suggestions and I might bung them into the next episode of this very podcast. The Sydney push. it By Sydney, they mean, you know, a couple of kilometres radius of, of what, Sydney Uni or Surrey Hills. Uh, I found it fascinating that uh, when it was announced at the Tropfist Film Festival, a short film festival, Tropfest, fuck that. Anyway, that thing, which has managed to sort of lose so much money, uh, was going to not be in the domain uh, near Sydney CBD uh, next time, but actually out at Parramatta. And it was all, there was all this sulky inner Sydney, inner Sydney, by which they mean. C B D slash Eastern Suburbs Sydney people going Oh what's it out there for? There aren't any there aren't any filmmakers way out there and who would go quote all that way? It's like twenty five minutes on the train from the quote centre, unquote, of Sydney. And yet the actual demographic sy- centre of Sydney uh, is even further west than Parramatta. It's, it's I think, about two kilometres to the north, two kilometres to the northwest of Parramatta. That's the, uh, the centre of gravity of population, as it were. And oh, just the... Insularity of that inner slash eastern suburbs, uh, Sydney folks, I find absolutely hilarious. Parramatta is some vast journey and it's about half the distance or half the time that many people take to commute each day. And the other one I liked is oh, there aren't any filmmakers out there. Uh, well, maybe not that you've heard of, mate, and maybe the festival is isn't for the the few handfuls of filmmakers out there, but for the tens of thousands of people who go to watch the films. The filmmaking is not about the filmmakers. It's about the audience, you stupid cunts. Mark Zuckerberg. I I did kind of laugh when his satellite launch blew up the other day. Facebook, uh, go to my website. I talked a bit about this on uh, ABC Radio a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Facebook was wanting to launch a communication satellite because they're, they've got this whole idea of providing uh, free internet access across the developing world. Except it's not really the whole internet. It's just a, a kind of subset of commercial sites. And I guess the whole deal is then that Facebook get to monitor that and and so on. Now, uh, the satellite was ready to launch. There was a fire at the SpaceX facility and the satellite was destroyed. Now, Mark Zuckerberg then posted uh, – this was presumably on Facebook – As I'm here in Africa, I'm deeply disappointed to hear that SpaceX's launch failure destroyed our satellite that would have provided connectivity to so many entrepreneurs and everyone else across the continent. Fortunately, we have developed other technologies like Aquila that will connect people as well. We remain committed to our mission of connecting everyone and we will keep working until everyone has the opportunities this satellite would have provided. So the Aquila thing that Mr. Zuckerberg mentions there uh, are these high-flying solar-powered aircraft that are internet repeaters, basically. And they've created... They're, they really are just in the early test flight phase. Uh, but these things, they've got the wingspan of a, a Boeing 737 airliner but weigh something like 100 kilograms. And they're solar-powered and they can... Orbit up there, and the idea is they they fly in a circle, maybe you know a few kilometres around in a circle to provide that internet spot, and they can do it for something like three months at a stretch. Um, I assume that's average time between the thing falling apart because it it must be fragile. I have a number of problems with this because. Here's here's what I found in that piece, and I don't know whether you noticed it because I read it fairly quickly, but what I called Zuckerberg's taxonomy of humans. Quote entrepreneurs and everyone else across the continent. That's that's his categorization of the human species. Entrepreneurs and everyone else. Uh, and that tells you immediately, I think. What the interest is in building this kind of internet uh, connectivity across Africa, it's not to provide what people need. It's to cash in on the rapidly growing middle class across Africa, across South America, Central America, uh, East Asia, and so on. That's what he's after. I mean, as, as you may know, I am a complete expert on Africa having been on the continent for 10 whole days and visited one country. But I I certainly visited places and high-speed internet is not what they want initially. What they want initially is clean water and electricity and a functioning health system after that. Uh, But of course, that sort of thing doesn't really provide the ability for Mr Zuckerberg to grandstand in that kind of way. But I would like to record that Uh, I would like you to record that uh, as Zuckerberg's Taxonomy of Africans or Taxonomy of Humans as I had it, Entrepreneurs and Others. (laughs) Call that an end to the edict for now, because my throat is uh, giving way. Uh, something chronic. Uh, there will be links to some of the things I mentioned on the podcast web page, which will go up sometime Wednesday morning. Leave some comments there too. Uh, the audio comment thing is broken. Don't worry about that for now. Put the date in your diary: the Public House Forum number four, Saturday the fifteenth of October, somewhere. Uh, in or near Sydney, uh, there'll be one in Melbourne in November. But the next episode of the nine PM Edict will be a few way, a few weeks away. Tuesday, the fourth of October. Until then, I am Stilgarian. Have a good one.
0: The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media
2: production, sorry.